0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have listener-selected questions that we're going to throw at Scott. All right, Scott, you ready for these questions that our listeners have uh, sent in to be able to have you answer? They're, They're really
1: burning questions. Okay, we'll we'll do our best. And uh, I appreciate that some of these people took the time to ask the questions. So we'll we'll try to do our best in answering them.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear from our listeners. You know, um, we've been really encouraged by a number of you who wrote in and just um, say you enjoy the podcast and it's helpful. So that's really a, a blessing to us to hear that and to know um, at least some of the things we're talking about are beneficial for you. So, uh, well, Scott, if you're ready, I will just get going with the first question here. Okay. All right. Josh Dale asks, who would Scott say is a trusted scholar when it comes to kingdom theology? Are there any good scholarly books that Scott would recommend for further reading? I'd love to hear some suggestions.
1: Well, Josh, this is a really good question, and it's a very easy question for me to answer because I've written on it. So I think there's at least one scholar that I trust.
0: I will say, yeah, I did recommend Kingdom Conspiracy and King Jesus Gospel for him
1: there. And he said he read those. So. Oh, he's read those? Yeah. Okay, well, um, I think it's important for uh, people to understand the history of kingdom thinking. And um, an author with the last name of Sosy, S-A-U-S-Y, Uh, has a book on the history, on the kingdom of God in uh, in the history of Christian theology. And to me, one of the great things about this book is that it is not locked down to just New Testament scholars. And people who do kingdom theology in New Testament studies tend to avoid theologians. And many people who talk about kingdom of God can ignore what the New Testament actually says, and they just kind of import the world's best ideas about the kingdom of God into what they believe. So that is one of my, uh, I think it's called the kingdom of God and the teaching of Jesus or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah, I'll Mark, search on it. Some... Mark Saucy. Saucy. Okay. Um, and what I really enjoyed about that book was he gets into Moltmann, he gets into uh, modern theologians, liberation theologians, feminist theologians, and exploring how people in the, you know, great Christian thinkers have been thinking about the kingdom of God. And it it illustrates both the diversity of Christian thinking as well as uh, some common themes. But New Testament studies, I have to admit, uh, go back in many ways for evangelical types, to George Ladd, to uh, others, uh, it, it probably goes back to Johannes Weiss, and then Albert Schweitzer, and then passes through notable thinkers like Rudolf Bultmann, uh, Gunter Bornkamp, and then up into Ernst Kasemann in the German scene. And the English scene, C.H. Dodd wrote some very important things, and so did T.W. Manson. But the result is that uh, Kingdom of God, uh, in scholarship and in theology, tended to become a dynamic. Uh, it became almost an experience, um, a spiritual reality, a spiritual dimension. And it just seems to me that over time, Christianity colonized and accommodated kingdom thinking to its own beliefs. So liberals tended to see kingdom in liberal categories, evangelicals saw kingdom connected to worldwide evangelism and missionary enterprises, Uh, social justice activists in the United States tend to connect it to justice. And what, uh, what uh, the, the scholars do is both illustrate it, but if you read them carefully, they challenge people to think again. And this is what I did when I wrote uh, Kingdom Conspiracy, is I thought that we so often had wandered from the clear texts of the Bible, in particular, uh, the teachings of Jesus on the kingdom of God, that there was um, a time and a need for us to go back to the New Testament and ask again. And here's this is the download, the big uh, point I want to make. What I discovered was that most people who talk about kingdom had completely eliminated the sense of territory and nation. Uh, that it, it wasn't about place. It was a almost a, a, a spiritual reality. And there I found no text in the Old Testament, in Josephus and in the New Testament where I thought that was even remotely possible. Uh, or if it was, it was a it was a minor theme in the literature and it never occurs that way in the Old Testament, yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls or Josephus. So, you can't talk about kingdom without talking about territory and nation. Mm-hmm. And that gets us uh, right to people and to place. So I, I think— Yeah, the, weren't there Skel- five of them for you that you, yeah. you identified? Land, people, place? But, yeah, I identify five elements. But that one was uh, the one that I thought was most neglected. you got to have a king. you got to have a king who rules. The, the, the ruler of the Bible is a redeeming, governing ruler— so redemption is part of it. You got to have a people. You can't have a kingdom without a king ruling a people in a place. So land was big, and then there's an ethic connected to that. So those were the five themes: a king, ruling, a people, a place, and an ethic. And uh, those were the major themes that I thought need to be on the on the table if we're going to have a legitimate understanding of the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah. That's good. So your suggestion would be for Josh to go
1: to that Saucy
0: resource and then kind of I from there some, a, some of I the main it,
1: players. I think Saucy or saucy, I think saucy. is how it's pronounced, um, opens up almost all the windows connected to Kingdom of God in the theological
0: discussion. That's good. Well, I'll include a link to that in the show notes so you can have easy access to it. Um, a connected question to that, uh, on the podcast, the last episode that I broadcast was a rebroadcast from our new perspective, um, on Paul episode that we did earlier on. And, um, Andrew has a question related to that, and um, his question is, do you think it is important for Christianity to to develop its relationship with contemporary Judaism, and what might be some ways forward for developing such a relationship? So you talked a little bit, I know, obviously about the Old Testament connection with kingdom and um, oh, with the, yeah. the new perspective under having to under ha- have understanding a, a historical perspective on first century Judaism. Um, yeah, that's kind of his question there. I Wonder if you got any insights for Andrew.
1: Well, um, the new perspective. Let me just summarize uh, some big the big idea. The first thing that must be understood about the new perspective is that Judaism, as a religion and as a People, whatever ethic, was reevaluated and reframed. The form of Judaism that most people knew, and uh, and I hear it all the time. I hear it over lunches. I hear it in sermons. I hear it, especially in chatter among Christians, is that Judaism was a works righteousness religion, and that. Christianity is a grace religion. There's some some themes there that are valuable to understand, but there are some major misunderstandings here. So E.P. Sanders in 1977, when he wrote Paul and the Palestinian Judaism, he said Judaism was not a works, righteousness religion. It was instead a covenant-based religion, and works or ethics flow from a covenant relationship I think he's absolutely he's absolutely accurate on that so once you understand that then you all of a sudden you realize that Christianity is not an uh in that sense the opposite of Judaism it is the fulfillment of the story of Israel as revealed in the Old Testament and in the uh, God's working with the people of Israel the new perspective, um, because it doesn't see Christianity, Jesus and Paul, James, Hebrews, etc., as the opposite of Judaism or as a total counter, but rather, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, that it is a grafting in of Gentiles to the original rich root stock of Israel. It is not an alternative. It is the fulfillment of Judaism in that sense. It is the fulfillment of Messianic hopes in the Old Testament. So the question then becomes, should we have a relationship with Jews in our world? The first thing that I think we should do as Christians is learn to re-embrace the Jewishness of our faith, and not see Judaism or Jewishness as something that is alien to us, but it is inherent to who we are or who we should be, because we've not done this very well, and at times in drastically horrific ways. But I believe that we should read our Old Testament, that we should see the Old Testament as the foundation of our faith, as the background and the, uh, the basis for what we do and believe, and then to see Jesus not as saying, oh, they got it all wrong in the Old Testament. we got to start all over, or Paul doing that. Instead, we see them interacting with and rooting what Jesus' kingdom vision, his ethics um, in the Old Testament, and see Paul doing the same thing. When Paul has an argument with people, he, he brings out the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't see the Old Testament as something—I'll use this expression because it means something right now— he doesn't think the Old Testament needs to be unhitched. Yeah. He thinks we need to hitch ourselves to the Old Testament so we'll understand what the New Testament is trying to say. Well that's what he's talking about in
0: Second Timothy three sixteen. Yeah. yeah, is that the the scripture, the Old Testament, is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking yeah. and training in righteousness and
1: Exactly. Obviously is important to him. That's the only scripture that that Paul and Timothy knew. And it clearly is the scripture that Timothy knew as a child, from his mother. So um, I think that we need to appreciate our Jewishness, our our heritage in the Jewish faith, and therefore we should we should be able to make friends with Jews in ways that we can't make with other people. And so, yes, I think that pastors in communities should get to know the rabbis, that Christians should get to know their Jewish friends and neighbors, and they should um, find sources of commonality and explore one another's faith with one another.
0: Yeah, that's good. So he hit on a lot of this kind of already, but Doug asks a similar question, kind of a follow up question, asking Can you expound on maybe giving a brief history of that de Judaizing of Christianity and how that has affected the theological discussion today?
1: Well, I, I'm gonna give you some, some ideas. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, uh, but let's start with this, that uh, already in the first century, we are beginning to see um, in Christianity tensions with Jewish believers. All right, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, we have a very awkward conversation going on between the strong and the weak. And Paul's use of language, strong and the weak, um, is language that's going to get him in trouble as soon as he lands in Rome, but uh, he's he's not aware of that, and that is the weak are not going to say, oh, we're the weak. They're not going to take that language as, as a compliment. And the strong are not going to take the language strong as a way of saying, well, we need to be more tolerant and kind toward others. They're going to see it as an affirmation of what they believe. But nonetheless, Paul does describe uh, two groups of people in in the house churches of Rome, the weak and the strong. And it is pretty clear that the weak are Torah observant Jewish believers in Jesus, and the strong are... Gentile, I think they're probably Gentile. Uh, let's say Torah non observant, or they don't follow the law. And there is pressure being put on the weak. Uh, and Paul describes it in some pretty strong terms. You know, don't sit down and eat with one another in order to get into quarrels with one another. And uh, he tells them not to, he tells the strong not to despise to snort their nose uh, at the weak. So we already see in earliest Christianity attempts by Gentile believers in Rome to de-Judaize the Christian faith. And Paul pushes against that and says that the Jewishness of the faith is inherent and that they are to welcome the Jewish believers in Rome. By the time we get into the second century, stuff has gotten ugly, and this is where I'm not an expert. Uh, but we have polemics uh, with early among early Christians, where some of the Christians are referring to Jewish practices in very negative ways, to Judaism as a, a religion that needs they need to put behind them. So that by the time we get to the fourth century uh, the Jewishness of Christianity was beginning to disappear and what was appearing was more and more Greek philosophy Platonism etc and I'm not I'm not here to talk about those themes and or to evaluate those themes but what I, I do want to say is that the the de Judaizing process began early but by the fourth century, it was so thoroughly um, penetrating in earliest Christianity that increasingly Christians did not see themselves in in the categories of the Old Testament or in Jewish categories. They were beginning to see themselves in in Roman and Greek categories, and this led to a long time of Christianity being this way, sure. with with moments of beautiful. Transcendence and return to the older ways, uh, but it becomes it comes to uh, its worst moment in history, into the one of the ugliest moments of the 20th century right. in the in w- among the Nazis of Germany, and the German Christians who did everything they could to erase Jew- Jewishness from Christianity and from the Bible. And even a great New Testament scholar at the time named Walter Grundmann, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word great, but he was great at the time in Germany, um, wrote, wrote on whether Jesus was a Jew or not, and he concluded that he wasn't. And this, this is a very, very serious, very, very serious issue when you are reconstructing your faith over against Jewishness You are no longer in touch with Jesus, Paul, the apostles, or the Bible.
0: Yeah, you know, that's fascinating that you started there in the first century, because I think when I initially read that question and heard that, I was like, oh, he's talking more about the 20th century and some of the discussions that we've been having on old and new perspective. But that's an important realization and Paul's reaction um, to some of that and the early churches and church fathers' reaction um, to how those things fit together.
1: You know, Chaz, I didn't say that much about the 20th century. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. We, we are—I um, think it can be said that until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the impact that they started to make, especially in the 1960s, but in the 50s a bit and then especially in the 70s, and then along with that, the republication of a lot of Jewish literature on the Pseudepicrypha from the Apocrypha mm-hmm. um, and rabbinic documents, New Testament scholars became much more in tune with Jewish sources. Prior to that time, a lot of New Testament scholarship was bathed in Greco-Roman sources. Mm-hmm. So there was Plato and the New Testament, It was Aristotle and the New Testament. It was Cicero and the New Testament. So there was a a turning toward Greek and Roman sources, especially connected to classical education in the Western tradition that led people to want to read the classics rather than the Jewish sources. But it was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that precipitated all the discoveries, you know, all of a sudden. We're seeing things, and we're comparing it to the New Testament. And this just exploded in biblical studies. And then universities began to develop departments of religion. And in those departments of religion, Judaism was taught as an academic discipline Mm -hmm. in new ways, and Christianity was compared. And all of a sudden now we have lots of comparisons, and Christians in universities are beginning to learn about Judaism in... Very responsible ways by advocates of Judaism, and this just made uh Christians more and more intelligent about the Jewishness of their own faith so i'm I'm grateful for all those developments
0: yeah de- yeah definitely certainly it is important so uh we've got a a good uh, follow up question here kind of keeping the the theme going with the um, Old Testament and New Testament and and how's that all fitting together here together. And um, Roger Schmigall asks this, he says, What is the status of the Old Mosaic Covenant? are some of the 613 commandments still in effect for Jews? For New Covenant believers, uh, for, so what about for New Covenant believers, or does Jesus fulfilling the law and us being dead to the law and having the New Covenant laws written on our, our hearts mean we are free and indeed um, not no longer bound to those rules? What would you
1: say to Roger? Well, he's uh, Roger has brought up You know, a deep theological question uh, for which I don't think that there are crystal clear knockdown answers that can just, you know, just say, all right, here's the simple set of categories. Um, But let's start with Romans 8, 4, where the Apostle Paul has just said, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what did, could it not do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The problem is that sin is alive. And the goal of transformation for the strong and the weak in Rome is, is to, um, is to put sin to death. And so the law, which is uh, one of, option for trying to figure out how to live a better life, Paul says that's not what the law will do, that the law is weakened by flesh, and that humans need to be regenerated by the Spirit, and the Spirit then gives us life. And then he says this, is that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that—this is an amazing statement—the just requirement of the law—that's the law of moses might be fulfilled in us." All right, so in other words, Jesus died for our sins and slayed death and put to death sin so that we might be able to meet the just requirement of the law, who walk not according to the flesh, which was Paul connects to life under the law, but according to the Spirit. So. Paul does not say that Christians are no longer accountable to the law. He says, rather, that if you live in the Spirit, you will do what the law teaches and more. So the teachings of the New Testament and life in the Spirit is the fulfillment of the law, not the erasure or abrogation or elimination of the law. So I don't I believe what we have to do is see the laws of Moses Exodus Leviticus Deuteronomy not as old primitive things that we no longer follow but as preliminary expressions of God's will for the people of God that receive their fuller revelation in the teachings of Jesus and in life, in the spirit. So, um, I think it's simplistic to say that's the Old Testament. We don't follow it. I know a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are things in the Old Testament law that we say, well, we don't do that anymore. And if we're if we're really honest, mm-hmm. we might have a hermeneutic, but we don't need one because we just say we're not going to do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, we're, we're not going to cut people's toes off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so what what I'm saying is. The Old Testament is a preliminary revelation of the will of God that and when we live in the Spirit, we do what God wanted us to do when he expressed uh, his will in the Old Testament. So when we live in the Spirit, we are doing what the Old Testament law tells us. So I often compare it this way, that the um, the law of Moses is a manual typewriter, that the teachings of Jesus and the life in the Spirit are an Apple computer, not, not a PC. John the Baptist is a PC. <laughs>
0: and um, This is a new I, covenant we're talking about here. Of course right. it would be Apple.
1: <laughs> that's right. So, we ha- <laughs> so we, when we type on a computer, all the technology of a manual typewriter is present with us and more. It is not a degrading of the manual typewriter, but a reimagination of the typewriter, a reconfiguration. Mm-hmm. And now we live in the spirit and the spirit enables us to fulfill the just requirements of the law.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's good. I think that definitely answers Roger's question there. And um, Scott, you up for one more question here on this episode today? Okay. All, All right. right. This one um, comes back to the old perspective, new perspective question, and it is from Yasuki Miyamoto. Uh, Friend, I hope I got your name right. You're going to have to forgive me if I didn't. But um, Yasuki's question is, the question I had was, is there any way both old and new could find, speaking of the old and new perspective, could find the third way so that questions of how to be saved and how to um, talk about the community and uh, communal different elements uh, be addressed together? Or is there no way both perspectives meet in the middle? Um, and if not, where can we find the answer to talk about salvation?
1: Well, Chaz, do you think um, do you think he's asking or she is asking about the Old Testament is kind of a, a view of communal salvation, and the New Testament is more of an um, individual salvation?
0: Um, I think the um. The way I initially read it was wondering about the, um, you, you know, the, the justification, really strong justification um, theme in the old perspective versus new perspective in having some, um, you know, different nuances about that and understanding it. Like you spoke a little bit earlier in covenant um, faithfulness, um.
1: And, okay, and what so, is, is, is what
0: I may have read it but so maybe old, you're okay. more right
1: I, okay so it's not the Old Testament but the Old Perspective um, if the Old Perspective focused on justification and individual salvation and the New Perspective focuses a little bit more on the church and the ecclesial relationship the covenant connection of the new people of God then um, I would say that a fair reading of the old perspective or the Reformation perspective and the new perspective is that both groups believe in uh, a focus in the Old Testament on the people of God of Israel, and the New Testament focuses on the people of God as the church. And that the Old Testament does not emphasize individual salvation as much as the New Testament might be read to do, but that both views believe in personal salvation and both views uh, emphasize the importance of the people of God as the locus or the physical space and place where the redeemed people of God uh Enjoy one another in fellowship and worship. So I don't think uh, I don't think it is uh, fair to old perspective people to say that they only talk about individual salvation. Sure. And I don't think it's fair to say of the new perspective people, as I've heard people say, that it emphasizes ecclesiology and not soteriology. Uh, I think what it has to do with is the entry place. I think it would be fair to say that the old perspective tends to see the entry place in personal redemption and the church as the collection of those who've been personally redeemed. And the new perspective would say, the church is the fulfillment of Israel, the expansion of Israel to include Gentiles, and now the one people of God is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus who have been converted to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, and that therefore they they both emphasize, they both teach the importance of the of the individual and the group. Uh, so I, you know, I, I've heard this conversation. I do think at times that there are people in theology who are so obsessed with individual salvation that they don't have any ecclesiology left. And I think that there are some people who are so obsessed with the, let's say the the people of God, Israel or the church, they're so much possessed by that that they don't have the courage or they don't talk about personal redemption as well. So those, those imbalances are present, but they are not inherent to the viewpoint itself.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, that's great. I think that's probably what he or she was getting at there. So, well, Scott, great work. Thanks for. Um, firing back on all those questions. I think you did a pretty good job answering all of those. So we're going to actually be back next week with another episode on our Ask Scott segment of all the questions that you've um, thrown our way. So just as a a cliffhanger and a reason to come back next week, we are going to start with the question, what are Scott's thoughts on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? So I'm sure I'm looking forward to hearing that, and I'm sure you will as well. So if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to our podcast and however you get your podcast want to encourage you to do that and got a great excuse um, right now to be able to, to just have that podcast that question come delivered right to your phone or, or however you listen so thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now